to the Aquarius Podcast. I'm your host, Randy Reed. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Aquarium Co-op, the finest retailer of all your vital aquarium needs. Now, if you've been listening to this podcast for a good number of episodes, you will know that I have a passion for breeding fish. And while my interest in the fish I'm working with can change, one thing doesn't. And that thing is that hatching and feeding out baby brine shrimp is a cornerstone of productive breeding and efficiently raising up fry. And for this, I now trust only one baby brine shrimp, Aquarium Co-op's brine shrimp eggs. These eggs have a phenomenal 90% hatch rate and what is even more important to me, the best egg separation on the market. What do I mean by separation? Well, with the other eggs on the market, regardless of how you harvest the brine shrimp, you are going to get an undesirable amount of eggshells in with your sweet, sweet baby brine shrimp. For me, this was super frustrating and really made me not want to hatch out baby brine shrimp. The aquarium co-op eggs must be sprinkled with some sort of crazy Artemina magic because almost all the eggs float to the top of the hatching container once the water settles. This makes for the cleanest gravity-based harvesting from a downspout or airline tubing that I have ever seen. Your baby brine shrimp harvest will be darn near pure gold of baby brine shrimp. No need to try multiple methods of further fry and egg separation. So head on over to AquariumCoop.com and pick up some of these amazing brine shrimp eggs for yourself and see this magic firsthand. Now, on to the interview. Today's date is Friday, December 11th, 2020. My guest today is Andres Ryan. Andres is the owner of Bioaquatics Fish Farm in Sarasota, Florida. He's earned a Bachelor's of Science degree in Biology from Bishop's University in Canada and a Master's degree in Marine Science from Florida Tech. Andres has over 30 years of experience and success breeding a wide variety of fish like clown loaches, Cynodonus catfish, Rift Lake cichlids, many tetras and rasboras, and Central American cichlids. So Andres, welcome to the podcast. Well, welcome to have me. <laughs> awesome, man. Thank you so much for making time. I mean, you are an incredibly busy person with all the, uh, you know, projects and the fish farm that you've got going on. Um, you know, we, we I think we already got about 15 minutes. <laughs> I think we got 15 minutes of interview already done in like the pre-interview section. So I had to make sure I hit the record button so we could actually get it, uh, get it out to the people. But uh, yeah, that's fine. That's yeah. fine. You know? Th- yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Andres. So um, I, I guess we'll just start off with, you know, with, with 30 years of experience with, you know, a, an academic background with two degrees in biology and in, in, in the marine sciences. Um, where does it all start for you? You know, what are your earliest memories that kind of led you down this path to the, to the point where, you know, you are breeding fish that um, are, are thought to be basically unbreedable in captive captivity? Uh, well, I always... Uh... As a kid, you know, uh, we didn't have uh, much TV and was pretty much spending a lot of time outside. And, you know, in the backyard, we had little streams and, you know, down the street, you know, in the little forest, we had a bunch of streams. And I used to go out there collecting all the time and put stuff in fish tanks and, you know, collecting everything from snakes to little toads. And, you know, and a lot of the fish that were in the ditches or the the little canals and stuff uh, in Canada was uh, a lot of minnows and some catfish, but also we had a lot of sicklebacks. So I, I played a lot with those, you know, the sticklebacks and uh, the, the five, five spines, seven spines and three spines. Three spines are mostly brackish, but that's where I started trying to, and I was very curious about the behavior of those little fish and when they put them in a tank and keep them outside because they, they like that cold water and then in tanks in the garage and things like that. And I kind of enjoyed, you know, seeing their behavior and then every time uh, some other fish to play with, you know, from bass to even trout, you know, and started that way, you know. And I just kept going on that. And then I still did a lot of other stuff, but mostly, you know, the, the stuff came from being outside and, and, you know, sticking your net into 
you know, a puddle of water. That's where it really started. When did you start, um, you know, kind of getting into the, the tropical side of things? Probably, I'd say, still in Canada, you know, I was go to the stores. There was, there was one little store, a fish store, and he would get in fish maybe once every month. And then he would load up and he'd sell, you know, hamsters and rabbits and that kind of stuff. But he'd have that little fish section and then he, would, he wouldn't, wasn't able to get a lot of fish, but once in a while he'd get an order in, fill up the tanks and then we would show up. And then uh, <clears throat> we'd, we'd, you know, start looking at all these different fish that come in from the Amazon or wherever else they came from. And that's when I really got into more of the tropical fish, you know, more colorful tetras and, you know, angelfish and some weird catfish from South America and stuff like that. Uh, I was probably, I'd say, 14 then. Okay. 12, 14. But I started really going to the canal at seven, I'd say. Oh, wow. Did you did you have, like, other than observing behavior, like when you'd put them in your home aquaria, do you remember any successes, like, you know, spawning any of these native fish in your, uh, in kind of yeah. captive? Oh, wow. What, how, oh, yeah. how did that well, work the out? Stickleback, the sticklebacks were one of them. You know, I was able to breed those, and I never understood why the pairs would die after that. You know, the female would die, and then the the male would guard the nest, and then as soon as the babies would hatch and go, the, the, the male would slowly wither away. And it's just the way the cycle of life was. Uh, the sicklebacks, they uh, they just die after they breed. You know. So they're kind of they like, uh, yeah, they're kind of like the like salmon's then, I guess, in that sense. Like they spawn. Right. And they, right. Some, okay. of them didn't, some of them didn't die, like some of the freshwater. But I played a lot with the saltwater one or the brackish water one, the huh. one with the the blue body and the red cheeks and the red mm-hmm. body. Those were really nice. And uh, but they're cold water fish, right? That mm-hmm. guy had the, those outside in like three degrees, you know, and really, cause as soon as I put them inside, it's too hot, you know? And, so, uh, and apologies for not remembering, but you, uh, you grew up in Quebec, right? Yes. Okay. So let me, let me, I got to do this, uh, the Google map so I can see Quebec relative to, oh yeah. Yeah. There's, <laughs> there, you, you definitely have a good amount of, um, salt water kind of just surrounding. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Cause you've got the, inlet. yeah, you've got the inlet coming in the bay. Yeah. Um, and, and freshwater. St. Lawrence River. Okay, I got you. Yeah. All right. Uh, no, that's very, very cool. And then, so with the uh, with the young, would you try to raise those up, or would you, you know, release oh, yeah, them? Yeah, I raised back? them up. And I tried to sell them in the stores, but How many How many times did you try to sell them in the store before uh, you gave that up? Oh, hundreds of times, maybe. I don't know. I it, would they bite? Would they bite? Would they actually? Would the owners? Oh, they would do the feeders most of the time. Oh, okay, okay. You know, because it was not really fish that people would buy like deal because they get a little mean, a little aggressive. Okay. But that's really how it started. And I, then I, you know, when I moved down to Florida for my master's, then I, I started uh, <clears throat> getting intrigued in all these farms because I never realized there was a lot of tropical farm here. And then I started right off the bat, went to stores, and then I'd get told the stores would tell me. Oh yeah, we get these fish locally, and I'm like, oh really? They raise this stuff here, and then I go to these farms, and they'd be raising a lot of Africans at the time. That's when I was in Florida Tech in Melbourne. There was a lot of uh, in the south in Felsmere. There was a lot of uh, African cichlid farms. But pretty much the main ones that started the industry, probably in the 50s and 60s, mm-hmm. were all there. Most of those farms are done now; they're gone. But uh, some of the original guy importing uh, all these, you know, Kenny eyes, the, the the original. You know, Aratus and Sakalafi, those were the guys that started producing those things you know, literally 60 years ago. And uh, so I worked for some of these guys, and um, it was very interesting because uh, it was very simple. Just get the fish, make sure it's healthy, throw it on the pond, and let it go, and then and hope that they breed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that was the way. 
and then uh, I started getting into Tanganyikans after that because they didn't do well in the ponds. Mm-hmm. And we do those in tanks, and then I got into breeding frontosas, things like that, you know. Uh, I'm curious. So, from your your academic background, um, you know, you, you're you're a kid. You're seven years old. You're in canals. You're 14. You're starting to get into tropical fish. So, kind of progressing through, you know, elementary school, high school, and then into college. Was were your was your academic exp- experience, um, you know, really? Did you know what you wanted to get into, or you just knew you were interested uh, in life and in, in marine life or or, or fish they, life? They, they, yeah, the big the big guy at the time for us was the Cousteau, if you remember that. Mm. Yeah, it shows on TV and he was traveling the world with his Calypso boat and all that stuff. And that's pretty much what I was interested in, you know, in exploring the world, not necessarily trying to make a business or anything like that. And I kind of just kept going and uh, I was interested in just seeing the world, right? Seeing what's going on with nature and you know, what kind of animals out there and and so when I, I decided I wanted a really big change, I wanted to, I could have still stayed in Montreal or Quebec or, you know, maybe Maine or, you know, a little colder weather, but I decided to just take a jump and just say, okay, I'm going to take off and I'm going to go down to Florida Tech and do my master's there in the tropical. And I knew nothing about this area. I, Florida to me was basically retired people, Disneyland <laughs> and, and beaches, you know, like that's, awesome. a lot of, that's and, all I knew. And gators and you hurricanes. Know, yeah, we didn't even talk about that, but those were the three things. It was Disney, oranges, retired people, and beaches. So I didn't really know what I was getting into. I just thought, well, it's going to be warmer. Let's check it out. And it's when I discovered that, you know, there's a lot more to Florida than just uh, retirement. Right? What did your family think of this? Well, no, they were glad for me to get out and do mm. something. They were glad for me to, to got in the master program for aquaculture. And, you know, I just did what I could to to learn stuff. But I, again, I got scattered around in a lot of different projects and worked mm-hmm. on different farms. And then I worked for the fisheries and I worked on aquaculture for clams and oysters. And so I, I was all over the place, you know? Oh, wow. That's so, so your actual uh, master's program was, wasn't, was a, a good portion of it. If not all of it was aquaculturing. Yeah. Oh, that is awesome. I mean, what, I mean, to, to kind of dig back into your memories, you know, were there any really memorable projects that you worked on? Well, there's, there's a lot, but the you know the, the ones that the my masters was done on uh, clams. So I did my I breeding clams, growing clams, selective breeding, that kind of stuff is what I worked on when I did the uh, my masters. Uh, Try to do aquaculture, raise those things. You know, they were doing it then, but I just kind of uh, trying to tweak out the systems. And and then at the same time, I needed a bit of money, so I started working at the stores, pet stores, and then I got drifted into the farms, and I still did the masters, and then. I worked on a lot of stuff. I mean, I don't know. It's hard to explain what, you know, I mean, everything from studying manatees to dolphins to sea turtle, you know, hatching and all that stuff. I mean, I did all of that, you know, as I worked and I help other students and other peers to to work on their projects, you know, because I was interested in everything. Wow. So you're, you're right now as an interviewer, you're making me feel like a kid in the candy store as far as like all the different things you've just said and like all the different <laughs> paths we can go down. Um, I, I do want to circle back to clams, right? So if kind of your, your uh, the, I think master's is a thesis. Um, so your, right. you, your thesis work on breeding clams, you know, can you kind of dive into that just a little bit for like a lay person to know like, you know, hey, when you get down on some clams at a restaurant, you know, assuming when restaurants open back up for everybody, um, you know, this is kind of like what it takes to 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 breed a clam and then maybe a little bit on the selective you know kind of the selectivity the selective process that uh, maybe you tried to introduce yeah well 
a lot of it is a, if you, a, any kind of breeding, you know, if you want to be a producer, you have to have a good genetic stock, right? And a lot of times as a breeder, any breeders, you, you end up stealing stock from some other farm, right? But it doesn't mean it's going to work better for you. It's just you're inheriting issues or selective breeding from that farm. You're not, you're not creating your own. And as you know, you know, if you're in a hobby of any kind, you can tell a guy how to breed a fish and you've done it a thousand times and he can't do it. Right. Mm -hmm. And it has nothing to do with your knowledge. It has to do with his parameters are a little different. His feeding schedule is different. His lighting is different. Who knows? Right. The gravel he's got in the tank is different color. It does, it, there's many issues. That, so in order to be a good breeder, you have to create your own stock. So what, what, what I was working on is basically let's say a guy has got a specific plot where he's trying to raise his clams because clams have to be done. Uh, it's called ocean ranching. Mm -hmm. So you go outside and you, you use a piece of land to, you know, you rent it from the state or whatever, and then you, you kind of manage it. And this is where you, you lay up your, your crop. Well, what would happen is that a lot of the crop would be coming in from another state, another, another coast area, or, you know, let's say Cedar Key, and you're trying to raise that clam into Indian River things weren't working really well. And so we ended up having to look around for parameters to look and see, this is what your environment is. This is the type of algae you're, they're going to eat the most. So where are you going to find stock that's going to complement that, you know? So that's what we were working on. And so we'd have to go out there, collect different clams and see how they grow. And it was long because you, you you'd have to measure a lot of the stuff and these things grow foreverly slow. So yeah. <laughs> a lot of measuring and a lot of waiting and, you know, and then checking the meat and all that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of stuff genetically that we were looking at, mm -hmm. you know, when, and, when you made the comment that you're inherently like as a, if you're, if you've got a clam kind of operation going, you know, the idea that you're stealing from another farm, is that because I, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to use the wrong term here, but like the gametes from the other clams are just in the water and they're going to end up in your clams and they may reproduce. Uh, no, but a lot of that... it, a lot of breeding clams is done in, uh, on breeding tables. You control everything. Mm -hmm. you, uh, you set up the clam on the table, you change the temperature, they spawn, you collect the, uh, the eggs, you let them settle, they, they had or whatever they hatch, they settle the bottom, turns the clam, and then you have to grow your seeds, right? Mm -hmm. And then, and then, but the stock is not breeding outside. You breed that in, inside and oh, so okay. collecting everything and you can produce millions and millions and millions of clams. And then as they grow, you grade them, you know, because the, you can grade them, you know, like in a, in a screen. And so you can get the size you want. You can decide that these are going to be faster growers. These are going to be slow growers and these are no good. They're, they're going to take forever to go anywhere. So uh, so you, you, like I say, there's a lot of work to be done, but like anything else, uh, when you get into this level, it's, uh, it's very difficult for a lot of these guys that do business to understand the process of trying to be a little bit more efficient and, you know, to produce a better quality product and, you know, and not just wait and see what happens, you know? So it, it's like that for anything else. I'm very patient, you know, I, I work on projects and, uh, like uh, like this year, the last few years, I'm working a little bit more in angelfish because I find that the quality of angelfish out there is not that great. And uh, I, I think that, you know, crossing back angelfish with wild stock and trying to reselect the stuff takes a long time. I mean, mm -hmm. I need to work on a black will take me almost three years, right? Mm. And uh, it's not like I just got blacks on some guy and then I'm going to 
breed him again, and maybe I'll get blacks from another guy and cross him over. And no, you intend to inherit problems, you know, and who knows your genetics and, you know, you don't, you know, so it's nice to start with a clean slate. And that's what I like to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't, I'm not really a big fan of, of getting some fish from some guy and say, okay, breed those and do it. So that's why I like the wild fish a lot, you know, because they, you know, then you can get stock and get, you know, good work on it. But one of the things I will tell anybody is that if you get wild fish, the best breeding fish you will get out of the wild gene pool is your F3s. Hmm. So your F3s will be much more adaptable to your food, disease resistance in your system, uh, quality of hatches, uh, growth rates. So all that stuff is going to be optimized in in the F3s. You know, F3s is the stock that you really want to use to to breed in your water. And in F- your an F3 is okay. Now help me out here. So that's going to be the third batch, third the third, the third, the third generation away from the parents, or the third batch I'm that wild. the wilds produce. Okay, third away from the wild. F5 wild would be called F0. Okay, and then F1 oh. is yeah, F1 is that first batch, and then when those guys breed, that's F2, and when those right. guys breed, that's F3. Right. Gotcha. So if you select breeding on those and you pick the best, the best, the best, your F3s were going to be your optimum breeders for uh, for production, for health, you know, whatever else, you know, you want to work. But those are the those those are the parameters that I work on. And a lot of people don't understand what I keep breeding these fish. And I'm like, well, I'm not there yet. You know, I'm not there for the quality I want to get the quality of the fish, you know. Is- so uh, is, is that now now arising and I'm so sorry like with with the the Facebook messenger voice that we're using it, it, it makes it so prone to, to interrupting so I apologize Andres for that um, and then also I, I, I do get impatient with my questions so I'm sorry for interrupting you uh, but the how did you come to the conclusion that f3 is that like your academic experience plus your practical experience or is this something you've just yeah, developed mostly practical mostly practical okay yeah. Because you're trying to, you got to realize you're selectively breeding, right? Mm-hmm. So you, you pick the best of the best of the best, right? So the F1s, you're going to get them in and you're going to pick the one that grow the fastest. And then you're going to do it again and again. But as the genetics goes up and then you're, you're how do you say, the, you're progressing into your genetic gene pool, those genes get selective on your parameters that you're growing the stuff up, mm-hmm. right? You know? And so... You know, I mean, of course, F1s are going to do great. F2s are going to be great. But if you really want to optimize, you know, you, you got to get to the F3 level, you know. And after that, if you want to be crazy, then you start, you know, really work on trying to go with, with the albinos and all the melanistic colors and, you know, trying to get different patterns. And so that goes down to the past the F3s, F4s, F5s. And then you're going to, you know, start to get, you know, the, those genes out. They're all, all those genes are there, but they're just so it's a recessive that it doesn't take much for them to be muffled. So you have to go out and then when you get this albino or when melanistic strain, you want to cross it back to the wild type or whatever to get the strength back up. Hmm. And then you, then you cross it back over to get a nice healthy albino. You know, the problem with a lot of the albinos that people are breeding is they're not crossing it back and do the work. And so you get, you'll produce a lot of albinos, but they're not going to be great. They're going to be a lot of deformities. They're not going to grow well. They're going to be tiny, you know, uh, all that kind of stuff. So, but then if you cross it back, you can get a really strong albino because it's got good genetic into it, you know? So it's a, it's a work, it's a lifetime project. Yeah, for sure. Well, just, just trying to do some, 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 some quick math here with my experience with angelfish. 
if if somebody wanted to, let's say you got yourself a set of, of wild angelfish, um, and you wanted to, to hit that F three mark, you're at like a bare minimum. Like maybe if you're if everything aligns, what eighteen months at a bare minimum to get to F three, to where those guys are breeding. Uh no, I'm probably more, more like. I know because you're looking at six months. Right, right. That's what I'm saying. Like, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, okay, yeah. If, if you're pushing it, exactly, really, exactly, uh, pushing, it. pushing it. Yeah, but most of the time, you'll do that stuff in probably two years to three years. Yeah. So, so somebody listening to this, that's like, oh man, I'm really intrigued by what Andres is saying. That sounds cool. Maybe I want to try it. Like, if, if you're in like two years, two years minimum to like kind of get to that point where you're you're where you're starting to get that f3 level so patience patience 100 percent, absolutely like just that initial commitment to what you want to do in that project and the fact that you know you do this stuff uh, with many many species really really speaks to your commitment and patience for sure yeah, well it's a it's it's kind of like a double-edged sword it's a it's a good thing and it's a bad thing i because, love that term by the way that's uh, that's one of my favorite uh, you, get, you get caught up in the moment and you're like oh great i'm doing this and you're like no i'm not totally there yet but you, you if you really want to be good and you really want to come up with a healthy fish or a healthy product or something that's your own it's going to take some time you know, it's going to take some time. I always remember years ago uh, when I went some clubs, it was this old timer. It was in a club and passed away a long time ago, but he, he was able, he was able to raise a convict. I've never seen him before, but it was a regular pink convict. And he was able to turn that pink convict into, uh, you know, the, with the red on him, uh-huh. it had red stripes. It looked like a red zebra. Wow. You know? And uh, it, it said it took him 10 years, Jeez. you know, and for 10 years, he kept plugging away to make sure that all the stripes were red on males and females. And I've, I've never seen that again, you know, those stocks went away, but I mean, it was a lot of work, yeah. but you know, next thing you know, every time he was in the club, he pulled these things out and people go, holy shit, where'd you get that? And I made it, you know, yeah. <laughs> so that's a, we don't see that a lot anymore. You know, we don't rare breed. Yeah. That's a rare breed of person. Yeah. And it's, it's a convict, right? It's just mm-hmm. a little pink convict that, you know, and, and so a lot of these, uh, things are, are not there anymore you know a lot of the hobby now is mostly based oh look what i did or look at this fish or look at a new collecting station or the collecting locale or yeah, it's all great but you know like for me for example if i look at the loaches right i started uh, i see loaches are born for example at the age of uh, let's say three days after hatch they have five stripes mm-hmm. they have five little stripes on their body and then uh, you know you're looking at a fish that's three millimeters long right it's two millimeters yeah so and then those stripes goes away and then it goes down to four, it goes down to three and then uh, that's it. Right. So, but a lot of times when you breed them like this, you come up with different patterns, right? Yeah. You get some with two stripes at the end, you get some with five stripes, you get some with broken stripes. And I started realizing that there's a big market for those, you know, the oddball patterns, mm-hmm. you know? And then uh, at one point, you know, I'll probably head an albino. And next thing you know, you get an albino and then you, you're going to get a melanistic and you're going to get this and, it's endless what you can do with the fish, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's what the, the neat part is. It's, that's what, to me, is interesting, you know, to make it your own. Mm. Not to say, I bred black angels. Oh, that's great. You know, uh, it's just, that's what intrigues me. Mm. What, what What's going to be next? What's going to be next? What's the next fish on the on the thing? You know, and I know that there's melanistics and albino loaches. They, they find them in the wild. You know, we don't see them here because the Asian market will take those and sell them for, you know, four or five figures. You know, wow. <laughs> so, you know, so uh, you know they're they're available. They're there, but you, you're not going to see them here because people aren't 
going to spend the money. I'm not doing again this for the money. I'm doing this for the intrigue of coming up with something different. You know, mm-hmm. what is your what is your process to document, record? You know, this this you know multi year, multi generational effort. Because um, looking at the videos, I don't see. In, in you know, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, in like Ryan's tour of your farm, of Corey's tour of your farm, I don't recall like any notations on any of the tanks. Um, is no, this- I don't put much on the tanks. Mm-hmm. I put most. I, I write stuff in books and I okay. do, do some small recordings. Okay. You know, I'll take the phone and, and do a little a little clip, you know, and uh, you know look at the parameters and stuff, and then I, I kind of record stuff like that, and then I'm always experimenting. You know, I'm trying different things, and you know, I kill more than I produce sometimes <laughs> you know and and it's it is just the way it is uh i used to take better records but after a while you know you you just uh it's, it's one it's one of those things you know talent built over time you know i was able to i could look at a fish and then do a bit of research on it and say okay this is a, this type of fish da, 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 and it comes from this area blah 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 and then i i say okay it, it's going to need this type of temperature breeds at this time of year about and then i just go with that right mm. It's like, for example, a lot of people ask me, uh, how do cardinal tetras, right? So they keep thinking it's like breeding neon, but it's not. It's a completely different fish. It doesn't breed the same. It doesn't breed at the same time of the day. It doesn't use the same temperature. Uh, like if I just give you the basic parameters, uh, neon's a pair spawner, cardinal's mm-hmm. a group spawner. So card- cardinals will not breed as pairs. It's They will, but it's not this new great, but they'll breed as a group. Uh, uh, card- uh, neon tetras need a brush. Cardinals do not. Cardinals will breed in the open water. Uh, and, by, cardinals- and by brush, because defi- my understanding of neons oh, and what I've seen oh, is right. they'll put pairs in like the little trays at the farms with like some java moss or something. Is that what you right. refer to? Uh, as- they, need, they need the moss to, to make sure that the eggs are hidden. Mm-hmm. You know? Cardinals don't do that. Cardinals will breed uh, in the open water, but you got to realize open water for them is black. Right. And the eggs just go to the bottom and the area where these cardinals live, there's nothing else that lives there. You know, when they're in breeding season, there's not many fish to breed that, that do and thrive in pH of four and dark water in New Washington. You mm. know, do well. They're not going to breed in clear, pristine, you know, uh, crystal clear water. And they don't breed that. They breed in the dark, you know. And then uh, they breed. The other thing, too, is the cardinals will breed first light and neon breed at uh, dust. Interesting. So. So they're two different times of breathing. They don't breed in the same water. The neon likes cooler water. Uh, cardinals like it a little warmer. So there's a lot of things like that that make, you know, but it took years, right? It's not like I figured this stuff up and overnight. It took a, Cardinal took me three years, three to four years to figure that one out. And, uh, and then there's the hatching and then there's the, what do you feed them and how do you keep them? And what are the diseases that are going to be prone at different stages of their lives? And there's all these things that are adaptable to, all the fish that you're breeding, right? You, you, you're going to realize that some some Central Americans are going to be very susceptible to uh, to hex and internal parasites because they they come from really clean rivers, mm-hmm. lots of current, and then uh, and then we are out there trying to breed them in a pond or in a tank that we don't change the water much, you know, only when they're breeding. And so th- there's a lot of stress affected on these fish that uh, are done from aquaculture, from the hobby itself. Mm-hmm. You got to take all these things in consideration when you're trying to produce something and commercial level, you have to say, okay, when I breed this fish, uh, they're going to need to eat this and then they're going to eat this and then the filtration is going to change and then the water change is going to be more dominant and 
you know, food's going to change. There's all kinds of parameters and things that you're going to see in diseases too, right? You know, there's a density issue. So if you put the fish in too high densities, you're going to have uh, all kinds of little parasites that may show up or, you know, bacteria infections. And so all this is, uh, is part of the, the process and mm-hmm. you have to know how to manage this stuff and, or prevent it is the best thing. You know? mm-hmm. So not just keep throwing medication on them. They realize that, you know, these fish at certain age produce more hormones and then they'll stunt the growth of their brothers and sisters. And so you got to do more water changes. So there's all kinds of things that, you know, over time you learn, you know, and some fish are easier and other some fish are a lot harder. So, so one of the things that I like to do to, you know, just see if there's anybody in academia that, uh, that you know, I might want to interview for this podcast is uh, for Google Scholar or scholar.google.com, I've got a few different alerts uh, for various topics. And then every day I get um, a daily email of uh, recent white papers or research papers or whatever it may be in academia that are being published for those keywords. Like, you know, tropical fish is one of them, um, discus, corydora. Like there's various, there's various things that I've got searched for. Do you do any of that? Is there anybody in academia, like in the aquaculture world that you continually talk to? Um, are you, are you looking for like recent, uh, articles on any of these fish that you might be interested in? Yeah. I look at a little bit of stuff from the, uh, the fish lab in Ruskin. They got some publication, but the thing is, yeah, most of the time the research is very specific to a specific item that it's going to be needed in uh, for you know for high volume, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, Petco, PetSmart, Pet Supermarket, Walmart, that kind of stuff. So because they're million dollars of fish or they, they're big industries, right? So most of those projects are going to be on those level. Uh, they do a lot of research on other fish. But if the fish doesn't have a market, then the projects get scanned, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there was a good one that was, uh, they did the research on, for example, uh, hatchet fish. So they were doing hatchet fish, figure out how to breed it, and they get it all figured out. But then what happened is that the, there was no market for the fish, mm-hmm. right? And high volume. There's a market for it, but there's not a, the, the Petco or one of these big guys was going to was going to do it. And then they decided to can it. So most of these farmers that were going to do it decided, well, well, not doing it you know so you get a bit of data out of these research projects but you don't get all of it right you don't you don't get the the long-term research you just get the data okay we know how to breed it and then that's about it mm. so you after that how do you grow it what's the best food what's the best temperature what are the what are they going to be prone to in diseases and blah 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 what's the best way to ship them and pack them and you know all that kind of stuff so so me i'm more into the whole thing right Mm-hmm. So I don't really look as much data as I, I should, but I got the basics, right? And if I need something, I'll ask them. Uh, most of the time, if I use the lab for research, it's basically say, okay, these fish are dying or there's a problem here. Do me a test or do my sensitivity test for bacteria or you know, check what's the gut content. And, you know, I'll give them the samples and they'll go through it and tell me what they find, you know, mm-hmm. there their opinion, not mine. Right. So there's things like that, you know, I, I tend to use some stuff like that, but overall I try to do stuff myself, you know, trying to figure it out on my own. And, and, uh, and if I have questions and stuff, I'll do it, but it's, it's kind of hard, right. You know, I've, I've had these labs tell me they've done clown loaches. I get the data, I get the stuff and I can't do it. Right. Mm. And for years I'm trying to use what they're using and it's not working. Right. So their system was different. They had whatever they were doing 
was working. I mean, it was partially working, but it wasn't really working. And then suddenly I had to say, okay, scratch that, start all over, let's do my way. And so that's what I did, right? And then you have to, you can take their word for it. Yeah, it, it worked for them, their way and their water and whatever they were doing, but it wasn't working for me, right? And so, and they didn't have enough data. They didn't have the data on conditioning. They didn't have this, they didn't have that. So it was hard for me to just say, okay, uh, what am I doing wrong? It's, it's not like, what am I doing wrong? I started wrong. I started wrong. I said, I have to go back to observation, uh, checking up sampling, and then just sit there and have the fish in the house all day and look at them for a year and see what's going on. You know? That seems like it puts the research and the science in a tough spot because the whole point of you know publishing a paper on something is that you know you share all the data points and so somebody else should be able to replicate if they follow your procedures and have your same parameters. Oh, but when you, but when you throw in this, you throw in this sure. element. I can breed, breed loaches now anywhere in the uh -huh. country. I'm worried about that. Now I've got all that. I've got all I need to know. But right. for them, but for them though, like they produced a paper that you know, even following their their instructions, this element of a live a live animal, and if somebody else can't replicate it, it kind of right. like it makes it a tough area to do research in and publish it. And uh, uh, yeah, it's very hard. It's yeah. very hard. There's a lot of things that you know they do a certain way, but the thing that I'm going to tell you that in order to be in this hobby or anything in life, you got to have that passion, mm -hmm. the passion enjoying the moment right not necessarily the passion to make dollars no the passion of saying oh check that out look at how this fish is doing the stuff and you know, don't have to really take a video of it just enjoying the moment and have passion of nature or whatever you know your passion is it doesn't matter if it's music or sports or whatever the the thing is, and that's what i see the problem sometimes in academics is that they do it for a purpose but they don't have the passion behind it mm. so they make they miss the intricacies of the behavior, the little tweaks and things, and where was the fish breeding, at what time of the day, and you know, was there other fish in there? Was, was there a different plant in there? No, all these little things that they they don't pay attention to, right? They just look at the data, but they don't look at the at the whole picture, right? Mm -hmm. And I can learn a lot from just observing, not necessarily reading. You know, you, you, you can read stuff, but then you got to go out there in the field and check them out. Like one of the goals I'd like to see is I'd like to go and Borneo hopefully one day and spend a year there or six months in the breeding season and see really what's happening you know mm -hmm. what's the environment what's this what's that you know what's going on over there you mm -hmm. know not just go there for a weekend and say hey look as no it's just go there and experience you know the the environment you know the you know, everything that's happening over there yeah you know? and it's it's not it's not easy you know but it, that's how you learn Right. That's how you learn. You know, that most of these guys that do research with monkeys and apes and stuff, they're not sitting there. Like, OK, I, I was there for a day. I'm going to be now. No, they're out there in the month in the, in the forest for two years. You know, didn't didn't Goodall live out there for just decades on end with the with the exactly. gorillas? Wasn't that what she did? Yeah. yeah, exactly. So they get to know what's going on. Right. They get mm -hmm. to know all kinds of stuff. That it's yeah, you could write all this stuff down to some research, but you got to be, you know, <laughs> you got to be organized. Yeah. You know? Yeah, so, no, that's uh, yeah, for sure, for sure. But not just breed a fish to breed a fish, breed a fish and figure out why it's like that. Why is it doing this? What's the, you know, all these little details that a lot of that stuff, like I say, it's passion. And a lot of the hobbyists have a passion, right? They want to take care of their fish. It's their little babies and they're proud of their setup and they're proud of how they do stuff and, um, and their lighting and their plants and the way they decor or the decorations. And so there's passion there. You know, and then, then you got to apply it in the breeding, 
you know, I'm not very good at decorating tanks. I'm not, <laughs> I try, you know, it's not really what I'm into. I'm, I'm into like the behaviors and the breeding and, you know, you know, trying to get something going. Right. Uh-huh. You know? So like I say, and I'm not even very good at the computers. I don't really care about, you know, all the stuff for multimedias or, you know, social media and stuff. I'm not even into that. You know, I'm not even, I don't really want to be famous. You know, I don't really care. You know, I just like to do my stuff. And if I can, you know, help the quality of life that I'm doing get better for me and my kids, then, you know, then mm-hmm. so be it. Has there been, has there been a fish that you have had a passion for that you want to work with and breed, but you didn't because there was no market outlet for it? Or were you just like, you know, I'm just going to work with this thing. I, I work with whatever I want to work with. I don't think that it's, I do something for the market. I do something because I like it, mm-hmm. right? There's a couple of fish I always wanted to do that I never got around to. And Well, I guess, let me let me rephrase that. Not, not so much for the market, but the fact that if you're going to spawn, you know, 100, 200, 300 fish, knowing that they're going to have a home, or you're just like, you know what, I'll just keep them all here at the farm. More so that that sense as opposed to like trying to make money off of it. Uh, I'll give them away if I have to, okay. you know, I mean, I'm not really, but I'd say, I'd say the number one fish that I'd like to work with that I've have never had a chance with would be archer fish. Mm. I had them as a kid. I always had them here. I like the fish, but it's a, it's a transitional fish. So it's going to have to be in fresh water and then brackish and then salt water. And so it's going to be a, a tough conditioning thing. It's going to be, a, a, you know, tough. And is it any of the archer fish or because does is even the truly freshwater one does that one also have a brackish period yeah they're all brackish okay. yeah, they're all brackish you know they, they, it's 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 a bit like uh a lot of the snails you know like or the gobies like if you go to the gobies a lot of the gobies mm-hmm. they're they're extremely prolific but they have to go through, they breed in freshwater, but the, the eggs are scattered and they go down the river and within 24 hours or 48 hours, they're in the ocean. Their larval stage is in the ocean, right? Yeah, literally they hatch in the ocean and then they have to settle. They go through the settling phase where they hatch in the ocean and then they have to metamorphose into a, a, a bottom fish. And, and that happens in the ocean. And then, then they migrate back up, <clears throat> they smell the fresh water and, they, as they, and then they move back up in the river and then they grow in the fresh water and the reason they do that is probably for predatory reasons they don't want to get eaten so they eliminate a lot of the predators that you know that would be after them so uh and then it's a secluded specific area so they they they, they don't have to compete with other fish you know mm-hmm. for, so but anyways the the thing with these gobies is that there's a huge market for them and a huge but it's I wouldn't necessarily do it for the market. I just do it for the challenge. Mm -hmm. How am I going to do this fish? They breed and then I got to, it's a bit like the, uh, another one that's popular is the, your Amano shrimp. Mm -hmm. shrimp. Yep. So they're not hard to breed, you know, they breed them in fresh water, but there's a whole trick where you really have to put them in salt water. uh, I'd say within a few days. And then you have to like, and it's got to be pure salt water, like 35 parts, whatever. And then, uh, then they settle they're, they're a pelagic stage and then they settle to the bottom. And as soon as they're on the bottom, it takes 30 days, if I remember. And then you, uh, you can move them back into freshwater, you know, or slowly dilute the water and turn them to freshwater. And then, then they grow in freshwater, but you cannot get around that stage. You know? So those are challenging processes. You know, it's not easy, you know, to go from 
fresh to salt to back to fresh. You know? so, so do we do we have any domestic production here in the states of Amano, or, or are those coming all from? I did, I did it for a while. I oh, did okay. a little bit. Of it. Uh, it kind of stopped. Uh, it was too tricky and too. Uh, it's just I did it for fun, and uh, I sell them here and there, but I kind of don't have them right now. And then it's not a hard one to do. It's just it's tricky and it's a timing issue. Mm-hmm. You know. So you just got to sit there. And so you have to have uh, the way I do a lot of these things. If I wanted to try it that way is I have a system with two sumps. So I have a sump that's salt water and a sump that's fresh water. And then, so when I slowly turn the salt, the fresh into salt, I turn the salt water system on mm. and slowly dilute the system, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, and stuff like that. And then I do the same with uh, the reverse in salt water and wow. then the load, the loaches is the same way. The loaches is the same way is because the loaches, if we want to talk about clown loaches, uh, they need two waters. They, they have a conditioning water and they have a hatching water. And those are two different waters. So, Well, let's, let's, let's do this. Um, you know, because kind of doing an overview of your website, um, you know, a, a lot of, you know, uh, prominence to clown loaches, prominence to some synodonis. Uh, we see angelfish that pop up on there. You've got your Central American cichlids. Um, so, you know, kind of launching into clown loaches, I guess, at what point in your, you know, fish farm journey, your fish farm business, did you decide to tackle clown loaches? Um, how long ago was that? And kind of what was that decision like? I'd say it's almost 14 years ago. So, you know, I, I always liked the fish, you know, I was like the behavior. I liked the fish. I never really knew it was in such a, a big demand. I saw them all the time, you know, when the distributors, and all mm-hmm. that. But I never really knew there was a big demand and, and I thought that it was just another fish, right? And it's later on I realized that there's no production of that fish. It's very little. I, I don't even know anybody. You know, I've talked to a few guys and checked and I got a good, good buddies and check and they barely have a hard time doing them over there. And then I know some guys in Asia that are playing with it too. But like, again, it's not, there's not, it's not like they, I, I couldn't name you three places that I know have done it. Well, you know, the, the internet would tell you that to breed clown loaches, and this is before you know uh, Corey kind of brought you into into you know I would say fish nerd prominence of displaying your farm and showing what you're doing. That before that, it was like, oh yeah, if you want to breed clown loaches, you have to do hormones. Like that's how they do it. And that well, and, and, and it's and it stops at that yeah, statement. It's like nobody yeah, goes any deeper than that. It's like oh, just hormones. Okay, I have no yeah, idea what that means, but hormone is there's a big misconception of hormones. Okay. Hormone is, it, it doesn't, it doesn't do anything really. If, if your fish doesn't have eggs and it's not conditioning, you're not going to do anything, mm-hmm. you know? So hormone is no different than a water change or a basically, you know, the, the light cycle or whatever. It's just a, a push over the hill to help the fish breed. That's it. You know, but the thing with the hormone and clown loaches is a tough one because if you're using hormone on the loaches and you don't do it at the right time, you're killing the fish. Oh, wow. So you can't, you're, you're growing the fish for three years and then you decide, okay, I'm going to do them. And then you stick them and then they're all dead. And you, then what, where are you at? <laughs> Nowhere, you know? So you, you, it's more than that. Now, hormone is one thing, but hormone is not, you know, everybody thinks hormone, but I can give you all the hormone in the world and give you all the fish you want. And if you can't condition your fish and if you can't get your fish ready, hormone's not going to do anything. Mm-hmm. It's, it's going to be a waste of time. So hormone is, is basically the trigger, you know, everybody are hormone. Yeah. You know, there's so many times where I'd see, I hear people telling me, Oh yeah, just use hormones. Like, okay, here's the hormone. Here's the fish, breed it. 
Go ahead. Well, where, 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 like, where are we getting these hormones? Uh, is it like you're going down your local tractor feed supply and you're saying, hey, give me some of that hormone off the shelf? You know, like, how does that? No, basically, basically, it's a, it's a, it's a, the main hormone in the industry is uh, Ovaprim, which is a synthetic hormone, but it's based out of salmon. Mm-hmm. It's made for salmon and trout, you know, and catfish and things like that. And so it's a high volume thing, but it don't need a lot, you know, I mean, well, for a salmon, you need a jar, you know, so every time you do an injection of a salmon, it's probably going to cost you a hundred dollars, but yeah, because you got meat, you know, but uh, the hormone is a very misconception. A lot of people just say, Oh, you're cheating. Not really. You actually need it to get going. And then when you use it then you're like, Oh, that's the trigger. Then I don't need it anymore. Right. You have to figure out really what you need to do to get the fish to go. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. And I would rather use hormones than see a fish go extinct. Mm. Yeah, I could, def- I could definitely see that for sure. Or being exploited and there's nothing left, you know. And, and that's what happens to places like Brazil and, and, and Southeast Asia. Some of these fish are just not going to be around mm-hmm. much longer. Not necessarily from the, the, the over-harvesting, it's just from destruction of habitats. You know? well, we have our own fisheries practice in the United States where when we catch when we when we catch salmon like you, they literally kill the females to get the eggs and then they they get the males and then they you know they express on the male's body to get the you know their right. sperm out like so they're we're, right. we're we're actually sacrificing the salmon fish before they get to their native spawning point so that we can ensure that their survivability continues right yeah I mean it, it's there's a lot of people on the planet man. <laughs> <laughs> no well, for we, sure. You know, we need to consume and, you know, people want wild salmon, but there's not much wild salmon left. You know, I hate to tell you, but there's not, you know, it's just, uh, there's so many countries out there harvesting the stuff and it's just even in the, you know, the we, tropical- we could, we could do that tangent too. And just think about how popular sushi's become in the United States and globally oh, yeah. and that pressure on, on wild caught tuna. And then, yeah. you know, I really, I really like hearing the stories of how, you know, there, there's some innovation with biodomes and nets out in the uh, Pacific of them trying to, you know, basically farm raise, um, you know, these tuna, but in environments where when they, when they farm raise salmon, they're doing it in pens. And I know they do this in Puget Sound area, but they're still very much in like smaller waterways. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of concern of waste and, you know, they're doing Atlantic salmon in a Pacific salmon kind of habitat. So we had one a couple of years yeah. ago where there was a major pen collapse and all these Atlantic salmon, uh, basically yeah. escaped. Uh, so at least with, with the tuna pens, they're so, they're so far out in the ocean that, like, okay, the tuna are going to poop and pee out there, but, like, it's just, like, the ultimate water change of the ocean, you know? So it's right. not, like, in this small estuary or this small river system. But I do right. like I, – I really like hearing the stories of, you know, the innovation that they're trying to, you know, farm-raise tuna, for lack of a better word or term. Um, yeah, but, you know, it's just uh, – tuna is uh, pretty much a tragedy of the ocean in a sense. It's the most harvested fish mm-hmm. on the planet. And uh, I had a friend of mine that, that did 20 years of research on tuna, and his name's Tim Sipple. Anyways, he's, uh, he worked on, uh, did his master's and PhD on salmon research, uh, tuna research. And, uh, and he mostly did stuff on Oakland and New Zealand. And uh, he said there's no hope for the fish, you know, because it takes too long to grow. It's a very specific fish. Uh, it's, uh, you know, we're going to do what we can to manage the fisheries, but even managing the fisheries is impossible because you got countries that do whatever they want to do. Right. And then one of the data that was really sad in the salmon and the tuna was uh, the size of the fish 40 years ago and the size of the fish now. 
So 40 years ago, a tuna was 1,200 pounds. Now it's 300. So what happened? It's just, well, they don't let them grow. They don't let them grow. And then so they get, they harvest everything they can, you know, Mm -hmm. it's become so specific on the, you know, you get these boats out there that they go out there with their helicopters and drone and they'll, they'll scan the pod and say, okay, that pod's not worth enough money. We're not, we're going to wait for the next one. And then they're going to say, and then as soon as they find one, they just catch everything. And then they have the issue with the dolphins and the turtles and stuff, because the dolphins are on top and the, the tunas are underneath and they work together as a group to hunt, you know, and tuna travel the planet. They don't just sit in one spot. They're going wherever the prey is. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if they go in front of a country that, you know, that needs the food, they're going to be all gone, you know, and then they, they take them all. So, Aquaculture is very, it's a very early stage for, for tuna mm-hmm. and it's not possible to produce the fish needed for the consumer. Yeah. It's not possible. Well, the, not- the, the operation to do, so when I lived in San Diego, we, we fished a, um, a tuna pin. And what I mean by that is you basically, you know, hop in your boat and you go four hours down into like the Mexican waters and they have these massive pens that they pull with what, you know, look like fishing trawling boats and they kind of pull them through the ocean and that's where the tuna are. You're not fishing right. for those tuna. You're fishing for all the, the wild tuna that are around the pen because it's essentially like a giant kelp patty. And when you fish right. for those kinds of fish, um, the kelp patties, I, I think the logic is the kelp patties have, if I remember, the small fish and then that's where kind of the tunas and your yellowtails and all those guys, you know, you find the kelp patty, you'll basically find the fish. And so this tuna pen right. represents a giant um, kelp patty essentially. And I just remember like it, it was large, but you know, we'd have to have like tens of thousands of these things out in the water to even make a dent in probably just like sushi consumption alone for, you know, the Southern California region, you know, like it, it just, the scale of it, the scale of it's not there. We're way behind, you know, I mean, it's same with the loaches right now. If you look at the loaches, the price on clown loaches wild caught has been skyrocketing because there's less and less out of the wild and and the mortality is so high it's so high you know i mean the majority of these clown loaches is 50 percent loss you know just from landing you know so you know they, they, you bring in two thousand you're guaranteed you're going to lose a thousand you know and that's just you no know, but you know they, i don't know what the numbers are now in collecting i know that in the past the clown loach collection was probably between 50 and 60 million in a year and now it's probably 10 million wow. you know maybe and then there's the, and then you get whatever is left over, so it's not much. And that's why loaches right now are they're still available, but they're they're in rough shape. They're mm-hmm. in rough shape. You know? Do do they also face just uh, land development issues over in because it's Borneo and Sumatra? Yeah, well, they come from Java, Sumatra, and Borneo. But the, the thing is, most of these places are overpopulated, and there's nothing left. You know, mm-hmm. Borneo was the one that got hit the worst. That was the main island. But the problem now is that <clears throat> China's in China's into that island because the the governments aren't stable there. There's no government really. So they go in, China goes in and takes everything, you know, and it's very big. Borneo is very big for the rare metals. So China needs all that for their electronics. So they're just uh, raping the environment. They cut the trees, they rape the land and they left the whatever's left is, you know, <laughs> it's, it's not good. So I know people have been there about two or three years ago and to, to look for loaches and then those, air, those habitats are gone. There's, you know, hundreds of square miles of rivers that are completely decimated. And so they try to do loaches in other countries. Other countries with uh, rivers and stuff and see if they can take off, but it hasn't worked. 
So because there's such a demand for it, but if the habitat in Borneo is gone and the Sumatra and Java are overdeveloped, it's, it, there's no hope for that fish because it? it's too specific. And you know, the breeding is so specific that it doesn't take much to tweak it and to make sure that that fish will not reproduce. It doesn't take much. Mm-hmm. So, so let's go back to your, your experience then with the uh, clown loaches. Experience. <laughs> okay. Your so, vast okay. experience. <laughs> well, I don't know everything, you know, I just, I got my own little knowledge of, you know, the way the, the, way the fish are and, I mean, I, I don't even know which strain I have because there's, there's technically three strains. There's a Java strain, a Borneo strain, and a Sumatra strain. So I don't know even know what strain I have, you know, because uh, it's from one collector that I got a long time ago. And uh, I don't even have the wild ones anymore. Those are long gone. So I've just been breeding. I'm, the, the ones that are breeding now are F2s and F3s. So I'm, I'm doing that now. Uh, that's where I get a lot of eyeball patterns. Uh, I could just tell you that the biggest thing with loaches is that they, the conditioning part, you know, uh, they could be really fat. They could be really good looking and you think they're going to breed and nothing's ready. And it's one of those things like I got told you earlier that yeah, I was, I can only breed that fish I've, technically in the wild. It'll breed twice a year, but for me, I've never been able maybe twice, maybe three times in 14, it twice in the season in a year. So most of the time I breed them once a year. And when I breed them, it's always the same. Doesn't matter what, it's Halloween. Uh, can you hear me? Yeah, you sound great again. Uh, I'm using my phone this time. Oh, nice. <laughs> nice. Yeah, we man, we had a solid like 50 minutes of like real good audio quality. Then all of a sudden we started talking about clown loaches and then all sorts of distortion and stuff. So I guess the internet gods got mad at us for taking up so much bandwidth. That's <laughs> <laughs> not right. No, no, I mean, uh, I don't know where I was at, but, you know, basically, um, uh, like every fish is a little different, and clown loaches is just a hard one because it requires certain parameters and that are hard to achieve in, in the aquarium. You know, you need the, the two different waters, so conditioning water and the breeding water. And, then, uh, and Can you break that down for me? Like, what's the difference? Like, what would define a conditioning water versus a breeding water? Well, one of them is basically regular, like, oh, so I'll give you the parameters. Uh, clown loach water would be, for conditioning, would be between 7.5 and 8.5. That would be good conditioning water. pH-wise, uh, connectivity probably, you know, regular, I would say probably, I don't know, between 400, 500, uh, 500 microsiemens to 600 microsiemens is fine. Mm -hmm. And uh, our TDS would be, I don't know what TDS is, probably right around the 200 or 150 or something like that. So, but the hatching water has to be really soft, you know, and then uh, acidic. So, but you can't condition the clown loach in acidic water. You know, the eggs will only hatch in acidic water, but they're not going to, but you can't hatch the eggs in, alkaline water so it's what i mean it's got it's two different waters is you know, so. is some of some of the science behind that the biology behind that so that you know the the more acidic water helps the the actual fry to kind of break through the the egg the yes the, okay yes yeah that and then uh, yeah the eggs won't hatch if the water is hard and that alkaline ph so the eggs won't hatch or then they'll, then they'll, they'll die and then mm -hmm. the other thing too is if the water is too high in minerals the uh the fish don't break through the egg, and when they do break through the egg, they get their nose broken. Right, so right. 
thousands of loaches with crooked faces and it's like oh great so yeah all these little things that that take in advance um give me a second i gotta gotta deal with someone's coming over yeah sure thing two seconds hey andres oh we got some some video there we go man good thing i wasn't picking my nose oh that's all right man i just figured call you i'm outside and uh just doing my stuff, you know. I just a uh, little client came over from uh, Tampa, just picking up a couple of bags of stuff that was already done. Nice. Know. Well, I think what we can do is we can uh, we can kind of finish up the clown loach talk, and then I w- I do de- want to give people kind of you know us to talk about bioaquatics real quick, kind of give you a shout out on that front. Uh, maybe kind of hear the st- you know kind of the status of uh, fish availability, and then I think we can wrap this up so you can uh, you know get back to your busy day. But I mean, there's so much stuff that we haven't even talked about that I got to have you back on a second time because I know like just like well, I don't want to take all your time. Man. No, I don't want to take all your time. Hey, no, 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 not at all, man. Popular guy like, popular guy like you, though, <laughs> hardly, <all> that. hardly. <laughs> I'm just a little guy in the in the in the in the in the you know, whatever in Florida and a little quiet place. <laughs> oh, I love it, man. I love it. So yeah. Um, so your, your clown loaches, we were talking about, you know, kind of the, uh, breeding water versus or conditioning water versus, um, the hatching water and just, you know, what happens with too many minerals when the water's too alkaline to the, uh, to the fry and kind of coming out of the eggs. Um, so right. it, well, it, you, you gotta look at it that way is, so my biggest example for clown loaches would be like salmon. Right, so the salmon lives in the ocean, and then in the breeding season, it goes up the rivers, mm-hmm. right, and then lays the eggs, and then migrates back down. You know, so that's the way I look at loaches. I look at loaches living in big rivers, massive rivers, but in the rainy season, twice a year, uh, big rains, they go up the streams and they breed. That's how they do it. And then uh, the the little ones. They'll, 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 I don't know how far up they go up the streams to breed, but it literally has to be small streams, you know, so you probably, it would be very interesting and very cool to have cameras out there and videotape these fish up in the streams, you know, up the rivers and up the, you know, the creeks and, you know, and, uh, and then because the hatch, you know, they hatch in 24 hours and then they, um, you can put them right away into the hard water. You know, uh, within I'd say two or three days, they're they're in hard water and you're mm. back, you're, they're fine. But the hatching has to be done in soft water, so that tells me that that fish has to be migrating up a stream somewhere. You mm-hmm. know, so like I say, it would be good to go to to Borneo, set up these cameras underwater at a certain time of the year when the rain shows up, and have these big clown loaches come up and do their thing. You know, mm-hmm. egg scatterers. They don't take care of the young. A lot of I had a lot of discussion with people say, oh, yeah, but they should be taking care of their young. I says, no, <laughs> they, they just breed and then they leave, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know. And the fish produce a lot of – it's a really interesting fish for aquaculture because it a female can produce so many eggs. So just as an example, on average, you have uh, – if you take volume-wise a, a mill, a milliliter, a milliliter of clown loach eggs is 1200 eggs so for every milliliter that she can excrete she's doing 1200 eggs so but wow. most of the females I, most of the females i do do 20 mils wow so you get an understanding the wow. volume so a fish can produce 10 to twenty thousand babies 
well, eggs. I'm not saying they're all going to hatch, sure. but they're, they're massive. And then so I've had females here that are like eight to 10 inches produce me 50 mils. And so, so you're, you're stripping, you're doing the stripping of the eggs, right? And you could do both. You could do both. Uh, I've had it naturally way right now. Mm-hmm. The thing is, it's kind of a well, you have to do both sometime because the thing is, is they need to get rid of the eggs. You know, if not, there's it's so much, or um, how do you say, uh, organic material that the fish gets sick if they don't excrete it. Well, it's like egg bound, right? Isn't egg bound? Yeah, egg bound is a good way to do it, but it's just it just needs to go. Right. And so the the male will the more than one male will chase a female around and squeeze her. Mm. You know, go again and again and again and really hammer it down until she's nothing left, and that's how it's done. And then the eggs are just they're they're buoyant, really buoyant. I mean, they, 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 and then they, they go into the water column and they just go down the stream and they, you know, and then they, as soon as they hatch, they go straight to the bottom. They go straight mm-hmm. to the ground. They don't sit there and they go straight down and they stay there. You know, the fish will hover like a goby. It will not, will not leave the ground for at least, I'd say, three weeks. Hmm. So for two to three weeks, the fish is on the bottom in the rocks hiding. You're not going to see it, you know, and it's literally transparent with little black stripes. So if there's any kind of gravel in there, you're not going to see it. You know, it's just going to sit there and it, and it doesn't move. It only moves when it's looking for food. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of hot. It just goes a little jerk, jerky motion. So, so going so, back, going back to the boys and I'm so sorry, but for the, for the males, are you expressing them as well to get their, was it the milt out uh, the and then males, you mix it? No, the, males, uh, the males is, I use the males as an indicator. So I will check the males uh, regularly to see how much they're flowing. And if the, the flowing is doing really, really well, then I might start, you know, triggering the soft water and all that kind of stuff. But the males is the indicator. And uh, the males, after a while, they, they get really colorful, really bright red fins, and really uh, honorary hmm. when they're getting ready to breed. They start fighting on each other, and their, their, their spines come out, and blah, blah, blah. And, and uh, that's when I start doing the water changes and start changing the soft water, you know. So those are the things that, you know, I try to use and it's got a, like I told you, there's two different systems mm-hmm. and it's water, hard water, and the same system of water and the same, you know, so I've got two drains on the tank and got two flows to this. So, and then until I tweak it and then I make sure the temperature's right and, you know, lighting and all that stuff. And they do a, they breed, a, they breed first light. Mm-hmm. And then so, what are some of your first foods for those fry that are just, you know, hanging out at the very, very bottom of the gravel kind of in the rocks? Like how, how are we getting food uh, to them? Most of the time I don't do anything. I won't feed for a week. They'll just eat the, 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 the microorganisms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The biofilm because there's a lot, there's, you know, there's a lot of uh, organics in mm-hmm. there and uh, they go straight to brine shrimp. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah. Same with Cardinals. Cardinals, the same thing. I go straight to brine shrimp. Okay. You know? I've never done, uh, I've tried rotifers and stuff like that. It's just more, more work than it's worth it. So if the conditions are right and you raise the fish right, brine shrimp is a perfect food for cardinals or neons uh, or, uh, or clown loaches. That, that, that's, that makes life so much easier that you don't have to mess with any and of those micro gotta, foods or cultures yourself. Yeah, the, in the beginning, these fish are so small and you think they're never going to eat it. But you got to realize that, like, for example, the cardinals, I don't feed the cardinals for 10 days. Wow. You know, seven to 10 days, they're not getting any food, you know, and they just sit there and grow. 
and then uh, they're quiet in a little dark tank. And then suddenly, uh, about the seven or eight, I start putting brine shrimp in there, and they'll eat it. And then as soon as they eat one, they're good. You know, mm-hmm. and they're good to go. I reduce thousands and thousands of carcels that way. But the, the condition have to be right, right? The, 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 the grow out and the clean water and all that. Because if the water's not right, they're not going to grow well, and they're going to be too small, and then they're not going to eat the brine shrimp. Mm-hmm. So so a lot of that stuff is is making sure that all the steps are there and the, the growth is there. Because I've had pond loaches where I messed up the, the, the hatching water. They hatched, but they were they just stunted, and I never was able to eat brine shrimp. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, and then you're screwed, you know. And then you can do microworms. That works really well for loaches uh, because they the microworms will lay at the bottom. Right. Rotifers doesn't work well for uh, for clown loaches because they're uh, they no water column and the babies are at the bottom. So it has to be something that said LeBron shrimp works because after a while it just goes yep. to the bottom. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> they find it. <laughs> no, that's fantastic. So that's that's how it is. Uh, but it's still, you know, it's still a tweaking. The problem I have with the loaches is conditioning again. It's to make sure that the females are ready at the right time. And as many summers were, or many years, I've messed it up. I mean, I just, something happened, water got too cold or got too hot, and the, the whole conditioning went down to the toilet and then got nothing for a year. God, that years. is, I mean, that is, that is nuts. Like, you miss your one window. You miss that Halloween window, and it's, well, I'll see you next year, guys, kind of thing. That's, that's something else. Exactly. How long did it take you before? So 14 years ago, you got into clown loaches. How many years before you had your first successful spawn? I got a spawn pretty much the second year. Oh, nice. Yeah. And, uh, but I was never, it was really hard for me to, uh, to, um, replicate because mm-hmm. I, I wasn't taking notes. I was like, I always do this, this, and then uh, the fish were ready and I did something and it worked. And, and I was like, what the hell did I do? And then it was a temperature issue it was a food conditioning, whatever. I couldn't remember. And then uh, I had a hard time after that. <laughs> and I was like, okay, remember. Yeah, because you're not paying attention to everything. You know, you're not mm-hmm. taking records. And, and then I think it was the second year, third year, I just did really well. And then after that, it was on and off. And I had to tweak out the stuff. Yeah. Well, Andres, you are a busy man, and I've had you for over an hour of time. So let's let's wrap this up with kind of talking just a little bit about bioaquatics. So one, I love your ultra simple logo. Of I don't know, where, where did your logo come from? Oh, it was my brother and I were having lunch somewhere, I can't remember, and on a paper, paper, paper towel, he's like, oh, look, how about this logo? And I was like, okay. <laughs> it's like the it's the goofiest, silly, simple logo, but I love it. Like it, It's just like this green kind of loachy guy, but uh, yeah, I know. It's just, I know. it's just goofy, but it's awesome, though. I love it. So uh, yeah, your website. It's simple, you know, I didn't want to be. It's it's like genius though. I, I really like it. So bioaquatics.com. I'll have links to your website in the uh, in the show notes for people. Um, I, I definitely think that in the next couple months, you know, if you'll have me, I'd love to have you back on. And because oh, yeah, yeah, I mean, just, let me know. just just going through all the different fish that you have to offer. Um, you know, these clown loaches that you breed, you do have them available for sale. You sell the oddballs as well. Um, right now, and I would have to imagine, you know, with all the people that got into the hobby, you've probably seen a bit of an uptick. So, um, you know, you've got. It's, it's still some decent availability of your species as i kind of look through it um yeah i need to do the inventory again and i got all (laughs) stuff out there because i know there's something about that honduran red point cichlid that or convict that you have that 
I just I just want to work with that guy. That guy looks like such a cool fish. So oh, it's, and, it's, it's more of like a Sahika type fish, you know. It's not really a convict, I don't believe, because mm. it's not aggressive. It's not an aggressive fish. Yeah, and that's super awesome. It's beautiful. Um, yeah, and I mean, you've got you know uh, Neil Lampertlogus multifasciatus. I mean, you've got geos. You've got a ton angels. So many, so many yeah. different fish to to talk about on here. But I think maybe we'll save that for next time. But I would say you know in the oh, meantime. Yeah, See, I'm I'm breeding stuff, and sometimes I'm out, and I started breeding catfish again because it was too hot this summer. Mm-hmm. I couldn't breed the numbers that I wanted to do, and then I got back into it. And yeah. you know, there's a lot of stuff. Uh, it's still a hobbyist for me, but I just it takes me time to get my inventory up and yeah. decide what to breed. It's like I I don't really follow the market, you know. I just say, okay, I'm going to breed this, I'm going to breed that, and then uh, let's see what happens. Everything I produce sells one way or another, right? And then, uh, give me a second here. Give me a second. To my, to my, come on. <laughs> it's all right. It's, I've had, I've had barking dogs in a couple interviews. It's okay. Okay. Yeah, no, I got some people here. They just showed up. So I got to deal with that. Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, but, um, no, like, like I say, we can, uh, yeah, if you give me five minutes again, I'll deal with these guys. I don't know. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll let you, I'll let you go, Andres. I've had you for long enough, man. I want to, you're such a busy guy. And I, I think, know, I think it, people having, is, you know, the website, it is what it is. I'm trying to work on it and, uh, but it's not easy, you know? Yeah. And, uh, because it's another world for me. The world of the internet is is different, you know, and then deal with people and how to promote stuff. Then and yeah, it's there's so much to be done. I'd like to do videos, and I've tried, but I'm not very good at it. And uh, you know, so one day we'll put it all together. Well, hey, I'll, to in the meantime, time. in the meantime, I'll be one of your outlets. So we'll have you pop on every couple months, and because uh, I think people are gonna love this episode. I know I'm, I'm enjoying the crap out of talking with you, and I you know I can't wait to talk with you again and, and deep dive into some other of these fish that you work with in your experience. Right. So, Andres, I'm gonna exactly. let you, I'm gonna let you go, man. You are awesome. Um, I know people are gonna love this. They're gonna head over to your website, and you know, hopefully, uh, they swoop up some fish, or maybe if you do an update on inventory, they'll they'll pick up some of those oddball uh, clown loaches you might have or whatnot. But yeah. uh, mm-hmm. definitely, definitely awesome talk with you, Andres, man. You have a uh, well, it's have... awesome to talk to you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening. <laughs> of, no, man, this is this is this is the perfect kind of episode where you just you go, you share your experience, you share all of the knowledge that you have on on any given topic. I mean. We talked from clown loaches to clams to, you know, your time right. breeding sticklebacks in Canada. I mean, that's three C's right there, right? That's that's perfect. All right, Andres, you have a good rest of your day, man. Thank you so much. Sounds good. And we'll talk. And, uh, yeah, call me and we'll figure it out a day and we'll uh, figure it out. And then we'll talk more about mosses too. Ah, no there problem. you go. There you go. Take care now. <laughs>